Top of the morning to you, everybody. Welcome back to Wise Guys Hideaway with your host here, Ian Barr. And today we're going to be talking about the man who envisioned Las Vegas, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Before we do that, I'm going to give my quick shout-outs here. Quick shout-out to Art Thing Clothing Apparel, founded by author Gunnar Lindblom, uh, the author of To Be a King's Volume 1 and 2, and the proprietor of some of the best urban and athletic gear that there just is on the market flat out, you guys. Pop on over to Facebook or Twitter, I mean, or just Google our thing, Clothing Apparel, and I'm sure you'll get a link to pop up. This podcast is uh, not only an endorser and uh, a promoter, but also a partner of our thing, Clothing Apparel. So, big shout out to all those guys over there, you know, Ronnie the Cockroach, David Randazzo, all them guys. Another quick shout out goes to Scott M. Bernstein, author of Motor City Mafia and the proprietor of the original Gangster Podcast, one of the best true crime podcasts that there is. Pop over and give yourself a listen if you haven't yet. Uh, other quick shout outs I gotta give to my friends and family, you know, all, all the people there that are supporting me, you know, James Ramirez, Boston Rob, Paulie Gorgeous from New York, how you doing? Uh, you know, Danny T in Florida, David Braxbyer across the pond in London, you know, big shout out to all those guys. So let's get into it. Now you can't talk Benny Siegel without first talking about how, much of a figment he plays when it comes to organized crime now he was never a made man or anything of that nature he was a jewish gangster much like meyer lansky who would actually be a very close confidant of his but he kind of sort of held his own his own crew and just sort of had this aura about him that you know when people in hollywood or when he was first you know cultivating vegas or you know anything like that people people really put him as you know the top of the top in organized crime, even though he was really, I mean, just kind of like a, an earner and a, a hitman on the side for guys like Luciano and uh, Costello and all that. But born February 28th, 1906 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, Benny Siegel was the second of five children to parents Jenny and Max Siegel, who were immigrants to this country from uh, Gallica, uh, a region in the uh, Astro-Hungarian Empire region, somewhere around there. <laughs> uh, now, from pretty much the get-go, you guys, Siegel didn't have much use for education. He drops out very early, as most of these guys did, and joins a, joins a street gang on Lafetta Street in uh, Manhattan's Lower East Side, you know, which is real mobbed up. <clears throat> it would be during this time period that he would meet, you know, future uh, partners in crime, such as Meyer Lansky, who... Uh, would sort of, you know, kind of be like a, a mentor to uh, Siegel, even though they were roughly the same age, uh, as well as Luciano, you know, Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, you know, the works guys. I mean, these guys all these guys all came up together. They're like the original Rat Pack, you know what I mean? Uh, now, the one thing all these guys have in common is they were all sort of mentored by the same organized crime powerhouse. Arnold the Brain Rothstein. Now, Arnold Rothstein is the man who allegedly fixed the 1919 World Series and was also one of the biggest uh, bookmakers and uh, racketeers in the not only New York City, but also in the country during this time period. And he sort of, you know, took all these guys under his wing, Luciano uh, primarily, but I mean, Lansky and Siegel and, you know, all the guys as well. Now, eventually, uh, Rothstein's gunned down over a card game in 1928 and uh, a lot of his political power and almost all of his bookmaking operations falls into the hands of you know Luciano and will then be you know eventually turned over to Costello and you know so on and so forth but 
all throughout this time period, guys, Benny Siegel's running around doing dirt for these guys. I mean, he got the nickname Bugsy because he was a little, a little off. You know what I mean? Like he, uh, he sort of relished in the violence. Uh, matter of fact, when Vito Genovese first asked Luciano why they had to work with a bunch of hebes, uh, Benny Siegel got got mad. He got you know hot headed and he he went to step to Genovese, but uh, Frank Costello stepped in and uh, sort of solved the matter, solved the matter, uh, you know, amicably instead of with the fisticuffs, but. Uh, Boy, but boy, would that have been a good fight. Vito Genovese versus Bugsy Siegel. I don't know who I got. Who do you guys got? <laughs> now, when Prohibition takes effect in January of 1920, I mean, the gangsters know that they just, they literally just hit a gold mine. I mean, everybody from New York City to Los Angeles, California to Timbuktu, you know, wants a drink. You know, especially somebody who just worked a 14-hour day in a steel mill or something along that line. I mean, everybody wanted a drink. And then when you make something taboo, it just makes it, you know that much more desired so prohibition was was the bread and butter for these guys it's really what took these guys from you know street ruffians and extortionists and you know hijacking artists to suave ceo typed businessmen that were gangsters <laughs> you know that would put a fucking bullet in your head instead of uh instead of take you to court now Bugsy Siegel was, you know, about five foot nine, five foot ten. He's a fairly slender build, uh, sharp looking guy. You know, clean shaven, slick back hair, nice blue eyes. You know, all I mean, w women loved him from the get go. Uh, he would first marry uh, Esther Crankover, uh, his childhood sweetheart, and the two would have uh, a couple of daughters. One by the name of Millicent, and the other by the name of Barbara. Now. The marriage would eventually end in 1946 because Bugsy Siegel wasn't a very uh, monogamous husband. But, I mean, girl, when girls fell for him, they definitely fell hard. It might have been short-lived, but he uh, he definitely had his pick of litter when it came to the when it came to the ladies. Now, along with guys like Luciano and Lansky and stuff, he uh, Bugsy Siegel was also a very good friend of uh, Alfonso Scarface, Al Capone, and so much so that when Capone was on the run. Before he, you know, made the move to Chicago and became the powerhouse that he did when he was just a young man and he had uh, committed a murder in Brooklyn and he was sort of dodging the authorities because they wanted to uh, question him about it. Bugsy Siegel let him stay at uh, an aunt's house and sort of, you know, looked after him and brought him supplies and, you know, really showed like what kind of what kind of friend he was like Bugsy Siegel. I mean, if he if he was your friend, he had your back for life. If he, you know, if he wasn't your friend, you know, then the whole world wasn't big enough for you to hide in. You know what I mean? Now, Bugsy Siegel is one of the few in the proud, actually, who will be privy at the Atlantic City Conference, which is when, during the dates of May 13th through May 16th in 1929, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, you know, Arnold Rothstein, uh, Chicago's head boy, Johnny Torrio, Frank Costello, all the, all, all the big players, guys. They're all sitting around and they're sort of devising a way to eliminate the old-time mustache Pete Dons of the era and sort of make an umbrella known as the National Crime Syndicate, you know, where, you know, all criminals from all walks of life and all ethnicities all fall under the umbrella to work together in a diverse, harmonious way, as you know, as harmonious as you can get on the streets, with all having one common goal, make more money. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, so, I mean, Luciano envisioned it and, you know, everybody else sort of just, you know, rode alongside. Now, the first that had to go was Joe the Boss Mazzaria. After years of fighting, you know, Luciano decides he's done. 
he sides up with another old-timey Don, Salvatore Maranzano, and they sort of, you know, uh, engage in a, in a plot to take out Mazaria with the promise that Luciano will take over Mazaria's family and be an equal boss to Maranzano. So on April 15, 1931, along with Vito Genovese, Albert Anastasia, and Joe Adonis, Bugsy Siegel uh, helps to take out Joe the Boss Mazaria as him and Luciano are sent down to a hand of pinochle after lunch at a, you know, little mom-and-pop type restaurant in Coney Island. Luciano excuses himself to the bathroom, and then, the, you know, the four burst in, and bap, 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 that's all she freaking wrote. Now, Luciano figured that this would be, you know, the dawn of a of a, a new day for himself and, you know, his cohorts. Um, however, Salvatore Maranzano sort of doubled back on his deal immediately, you guys. He... He so he calls a meeting and declares himself the capo duty capi, which is the boss of bosses, which is exactly what Luciano didn't want. And so he again enlists the help of Siegel, uh, who enlists the help of three other Jewish gangsters. And on September tenth, nineteen thirty one, they bombard Salvatore Maranzano at his you know downtown Manhattan office, uh, disguised as taxman. And, you know, they stab, they beat, and they shoot Maranzano. And they kill two of his uh, close confidants. And the three of them are found floating in the Newark Bay uh, September 13th, just a few days later. Now, Luciano forms, you know, the National Crime Syndicate. And then he sets up the commission and the heads of the commission. And once he set all this up, he sort of realized that he was going to need an enforcement arm for the commission. Thus is born Murder Incorporated, which is uh, sort of the brain product of Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky put together. Siegel's, you know, ruthlessness and viciousness and then Lansky's ability to decipher and, you know, pick apart the the most pro proficient way to do things, which, I mean, Murder ain't nailed it, you guys. Now, eventually it'd be left in control to Albert the Mad Hatter Anastasia, and he would sort of get to relish in the glory and he, he kind of takes the name murdering down with him and everything you read or see but it was really Siegel and Lansky who started it first but uh nonetheless once they leave control to Anastasia uh the pair sort of move on with you know into newer aspects of their lives now one of the only convictions that would ever stick on Siegel is when he on February 28 1932 he was arrested in Miami Miami excuse me for gambling and uh vagrancy now I mean Siegel would have a slew of charges, you know, thrown at him. I mean, I mean, in September of 1931, Siegel would be tried uh, for a murder, you know, along with a couple of co-conspirators, and he would uh, hire a, a big-time attorney by the name of uh, Jerry Geisler to uh, defend him and, I mean, eventually get him acquitted when all the witnesses are killed. And in 1942, Bugsy Siegel and Frankie Carbo, one of his co-conspirators, uh, would be acquitted. I mean, he would he would run into legal troubles again, you know, on May 25th, 1944, when he would be arrested for bookmaking. However, by then, he sort of had the Hollywood, you know, echelon on his side, and uh, legendary actor George Raff came and testified on his behalf, and uh, Bugsy Siegel was acquitted yet again. So, I mean, one of the f only charges that ever really stuck was that gambling and, you know, vagrancy charge which he was, you know, court-ordered to pay some fines, and uh, I, I don't believe there was any jail time, uh, actually. Now, in 1932, Siegel sort of starts a war with uh, the Fabrizos, and 
eventually ends up killing Tony Fabrizio outside of his house when he lured him out uh, disguised as a detective, which is one of Siegel's favorite things to do. He'd throw on a, you know, quick disguise, dressed like a cop or a florist or a milkman, you know, come knock on your door and, you know, leave you fucking dead on your doorstep. Now, Siegel would show his pension again for violence in 1935 when he would assist Luciano by taking out a rival loan shark, uh, Louis Amberg, and his brother, Joseph Amberg, for their partner in Hell's Kitchen at that time, Dutch Schultz. Now, that relationship would be short-lived between Luciano, Lansky, and Schultz, but at this period in time, you know, it was necessary to keep Schultz happy, and Siegel was more than happy to oblige his bosses. Now, as the, the 30s roll on and the 1933 prohibition is, uh, you know, re- just revoked, and the gangsters are rich, but now their their bread and butter's gone. So they go back to their initial, you know, bad back to the back to their old habits, if you will. You know, extortion, gambling rackets, bookmaking, loan sharking, you know, hijacking trucks. Uh, and also at this point, Luciano has put his ties and his tentacles out there into the the regular workforce, the labor unions, you know, like garbage carting and, you know, the garment industry in New York, uh, the longshoremen's union, you know, on the waterfront. I mean, you name it, they were, they were getting into it, but Luciano is about to go on the run due to the fact that Thomas E. Dewey is just hellbound to, to dismantle organized crime. He's just straight shooting, you know, young, hot-headed, New York district attorney who's got a pension for the mafia and will not settle until, you know, all the gangsters are either dead or locked up. Uh, he initially was sort of gunning for Dutch Schultz early in, early in his career. But once it was found out that uh, Dutch Schultz was planning to eliminate Dewey, uh, Luciano and the powers that be decided that Schultz had to go. So once Schultz was killed, Luciano sort of went right to the top of, uh, right to the top of Dewey's sights. And so it was during this time period that Meyer Lansky sort of, you know, heads, heads for Havana to start, you know, uh, setting up casinos and other various rackets there and in Florida. And Bugsy Siegel is sent out west to Los Angeles, you know, the city of angels. Now the goal was once he got out to LA, you know, he would sort of link up with the LA boss, Jack Dragna, and they would set up sort of a, you know, a coast to coast gambling and, you know, bookmaking and loan sharking distribution. And Siegel would actually succeed very well at this. So, so well, in fact, that by 1942, it was estimated that half a million dollars a day was coming in via Siegel and his, you know, LA, you know, rackets that he had helped set up, but Siegel loved the celebrity lifestyle. He loved that Hollywood glitz and glam. I mean, when he wasn't, you know, rubbing shoulders with guys like George Rapp, Gary Cooper, or Clark Gable, he was seen in the company of women such as Virginia Hill, who would actually end up being his, you know, on-again, off-again girlfriend. Um, From roughly about late 30s, early 40s, uh, all the way to the end of his life, but, uh, like, um, before her, he would be seen in the company of another you know, Hollywood, uh, heartthrob by the name of, uh, Dorothy DeFasso, who would actually take him on a trip to Italy, and during this trip, he would encounter, uh, Benito Mussolini in 1938, believe it or not, and, uh, ever the, ever the gangster, Bugsy Siegel tried to set up some sort of, uh, arms dealing operation with Mussolini, but, uh, but there was it, nothing, nothing ever came of it. 
Now, on November 22nd, 1939, Siegel yet again showed his pension and uh, commitment to violence when he and three other aspiring hitmen of his uh, gunned down Harry Big Green Greenberg uh, outside his apartment after Greenberg had sort of been hinting towards maybe becoming an informant. I mean, it wasn't 100% sure, but it doesn't take 100% in the mob, you guys. Like, if, if they even think... If they even half think you're going to flip, you're done. You know, that's that. Now, as he begins his relationship with Virginia Hill, uh, he starts sort of stepping on some toes and kind of overstaying his welcome in L.A. Uh, he was still privy there consistently till the end of his life. I mean, he would die there. But it would be in 1945 that Sing- uh, Siegel befriends a gentleman by the name of William R. Wilkerson. And... Uh, the two begin sort of the initial blueprints for the Flamingo Hotel, which will essentially be the first big-timey hotel to ever hit the Vegas Strip. Um, I've never been to Vegas, so I do not know if it's still standing, but I knew, I know it that the Flamingo stood through era after era after era. I mean, up until, I think up until, if they did tear it down, I would guess it would have been like late 80s, early 90s, uh, maybe even into the mid-90s, I'm not 100% sure. But this would be Seagull's downfall, you guys. Uh, the Flamingo would just, it would just captivate him, and it would take all his focus and all his attention, and he would keep, you know, loaning money and taking investment money from his gangster pals, you know, guys like Luciano, Genovese, and Adonis, and, you know, Profaccia, all, all the heads of the five families, and then, you know, the, the heads of the other, you know, families as well, and, I mean, he would just, he would use up six million dollars in, like, a two-year stretch, and then an, another six million the following two years, I mean, and when he did finally you know, open the doors on December 26, 1946, the hotel wasn't even done, you guys, and, you know, Lancey sort of came to him, and he's like, you know, what are you doing, and tried to warn him, really, but, you know, ever the cocky seagull, he figured he was, you know, indispensable to these guys, and he was giving them something that they were going to be able to suck money out of, you know, until their, until their very last breath, I mean, which was more than true, but also, you can only take up so much of these guys' time and money, they don't give a shit if eventually it turns around and they start to see some of it. You know, it's a lot of headaches for a lot of years. Uh, the hotel actually, the, the casino and hotel actually wouldn't even really begin turning a major profit until March 1st, 1947. But that was even due largely in part to the fact that Lansky had sort of, you know, stepped in to help advise on the uh, sort of the recommendation, but also kind of just like the, hey, go, go fucking help that guy. He's fucking it up out there of Luciano. And... Lansky, you know, Lansky really did care about Siegel, you guys, actually. One of the things that he recollected on towards the end of his life was how bad he felt that they that they killed Bugsy, but how there, there was nothing he could do. You know, Bugsy had, was just, he, he was getting to be too much. He was sort of the first gangster ever to get a super big head about himself, you know? Like, he, I mean, he already had a, a, a massive ego, as all these guys do, just even coming from where he came from, but once they sent him to L.A., and he was brushing shoulders with movie stars, and you know, and they were just as excited to be brushing shoulders with him. I, I really do think he felt like he was not really a gangster anymore, so much as just like uh, I don't know, kind of just like a Hollywood figure, sort of like uh, almost like 
an, a, like a Kardashian or something. I hate to compare Bugsy Siegel to, you know, the fucking Kardashians, but he really did kind of have that entitledness about him towards the end of his life. And the end of his life would come very, very swiftly on June 20th, 1947. Uh, Virginia Hill was away on a trip somewhere. I do believe she was out of the country. A lot of people say that the mob had gotten to her and told her, you know, to stay away from Siegel. Uh, how much of that is true, I'm, I can't really speak on. However, I do know that as Siegel sits at Virginia Hill's mansion in the hills with an associate of his by the name of Alan Smiley, he's sort of, you know, sifting through the newspaper, just kind of, you know, doing his nightly routine. And around 10 p.m., a barrage of 30 caliber, 30 caliber, excuse me, carbine rifle bullets just come blasting through a bay window uh right in front of that was right in front of where Bugsy was sitting in you know the foyer or whatever the whatever rich people call their living room's living room <laughs> but nonetheless uh a series of bullets are fired Bugsy's only hit twice however there'll be devastating shots the one shot will go directly in through his eyeball and then the other one hits his nose and bounces into his cheek, uh, just shattering his nose and making it look like his second eyeballs shot out as well. Uh, very gruesome scene, although it was an instantaneous death. And, you know, at the end of the day, you guys, Bugsy was just, a, just kind of a, a rabid dog, if you will, just sort of running to the end of his leash at, you know, any given, any given moment. To, to bark and to bite anything that got in his way. And eventually, he just outlived his usefulness. But he would never outlive his legacy. Uh, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel is probably one of the most glorified mob figures who ever existed. I mean, between the fact that there was a children's movie in the 70s called Bugsy Malone, which was sort of like half-ass based on like the Bugs Moran, you know, Lucky Luciano eras where they, they use pies to shoot at each other and things like that instead of actual bullets. It's a, it's a pretty funny little movie, little, little song and dance musical with kids, you know, running around and, you know, their three pieces and their shiny shoes pretending to be gangsters. But probably the most notable uh, depiction of Siegel was sort of the half-truth version portrayed in the Godfather part one, the character of Mo Green, who, when Michael Corleone's at the church and they're baptizing his, uh, his godson and they're going through the whole, you know, montage and they're killing off all the, all the rivals. Mo Green's laying on a massage table. He's getting a back row. He's getting a rub down. Two gentlemen come through the front door and when Mo Green, you know, sort of leans his head up and puts his glasses on, they fire back one right through his eye. Which is, you know, a tip of the cap to Siegel, of course. Well, that'll about do it for us here over at Wise Guys Hideaway, guys. As always, I am your host, Ian Barr. You guys stay beautiful and tune in with me in a couple days and uh, we'll be chit-chatting some more gangsters. Have a good one, everybody.